This is the Stories of Transformation podcast, and I'm your host, Bakta Shahadi. Each week I dive into deep conversations with distinguished guests who share their unique stories about how they overcame hardship, learned their craft, and found their purpose. These conversations are meant to expand perspectives and share voices of diverse identities. How do you find your passion? How do you hold a sense of responsibility for millions of people that look up to you? And how do you know that you've made it? At the pinnacle of success, what is the advice that you'd give to your own children? These are some of the questions that Maz Jabrani and I pursue in this episode of Stories of Transformation. Maz Jabrani is a prominent Iranian-American comedian and actor who's part of the Axis of Evil comedy group. Maz has also appeared in numerous films, television shows, on the radio, and in comedy clubs all over the world. His filmography includes Roles in the Interpreter, Friday After Next, Dragonfly, and Jimmy Westwood, American Hero. He also released his memoir in 2015 entitled, I'm Not a Terrorist, But I've Played One on TV. Maz uses his sense of humor and talent not only to entertain audiences, but also to speak on matters related to culture, identity, and to educate audiences all around the world on those matters. In this episode of Stories of Transformation, you'll hear a more stoic, self-reflective side of Mazda Brani. If you enjoyed this conversation, please share it far and wide. So without further delay, I bring you Maz Jabrani. Maz Jabrani, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm well. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you, sir. Maz, I just want to say that I'm really excited to be in conversation with you today. I think the work that you do is, is exceptional, it's exquisite, it's funny, and it's absolutely necessary. I think the fact that you can bridge two worlds together, that being your Iranian and your American sensibilities in a funny way is actually what's needed. And the way you do it is actually really, really, really curious. And so I'd like to get into all that, but uh, the way I'd like to start my conversation with you here today is by asking you in your own words, how would you define who you are? Well, thank you for the kind words. Uh, How do I define myself? Just depends on, on what I'm talking about. I will say I'm a comedian. I will say I'm a father. I will say I'm a husband. I will say I am a fan of comedy. I will say I'm Middle Eastern. I'm Iranian American. Those are all words that I use to define. I'm, I'm, I'm part of the bald community and proud to be bald. I'm a big soccer fan. I don't. I don't necessarily watch it as much, but I am. Uh, I've played it my whole life. Love to ski. I mean, there's all these things that define me. I'm, I'm. I would say I'm athletic. So those are all things that define me. I like wine nowadays. Uh, uh, now I'm a dog owner. I never thought I'd be a dog owner, but I've fallen in love with this little golden doodle that we have, who is. Uh, beyond adorable and puts a smile on my face. So those are all words to define me. That's funny. So I think Mazel would be really wonderful. You know, um, people all around the world have access to your, to your comedy and your work. What I'd like to do in the, for the purposes of our conversation here is kind of, you know, better understand how you think of, of comedy, how you kind of think of the things that have formed and shaped who you are today. So it'd be really great to kind of talk about, you know, your origin story. Tell us about, you know, where you were born, how you were, how you were raised, and kind of the influences you had as, as it pertains to how you think today and who you are today. Well, I was born in Iran, 1972, and, uh, you know, six years later, late 1978, 
My family left and came to America. That was as the protests were happening that led to then the revolution of 79. And in Iran, I definitely was influenced already by the Western culture because there was a lot of Western culture around in Iran. So as a kid, I remember reading Spider-Man comic books, watching Zorro, watching uh, Rocky. I saw Rocky as a kid. Muhammad Ali was big. And I had all kinds of Muhammad Ali dolls. My father loved Muhammad Ali. My father was an athlete and he loved boxing. And Muhammad Ali was huge in all the Muslim countries. And I've thought about Muhammad Ali a lot in my life because later on in my life when I came to America and found out that he wasn't just a boxer, but he was also an activist, I was inspired by him. And then even later on, uh, when I was struggling with getting into comedy because my parents, being of Middle Eastern descent, being immigrant parents, didn't want me to do this and I wanted to do it. And I remember I was working... I had a day job in an advertising agency, and this was when uh, Apple Computers had an ad campaign that said, think different. And they had a picture of Gandhi, and they had a picture of Muhammad Ali, and they had a picture of Steve Jobs, all these people that changed the world. And the one with Muhammad Ali, I was driving down La Brea Boulevard in Los Angeles, and there was a big billboard with Muhammad Ali, and I believe the picture was him the famous one where he's punching and they got this angle from the fist back to him. And I remember seeing that Think Different billboard. And this is when I was pondering, getting into basically defying my parents' wishes and dropping out of the job that I had to go and pursue comedy and acting. I remember looking at that and going, wow, he was the champion and he ended up affecting the world in what I found to be a positive way. And so I said, gee, I wonder if I'll ever get a chance. I thought, you know, I won't know unless I take that step. And so that was one of the inspirations that led to me finally realizing in my mid-20s that you live once and you should live for what you want to live for. If you have a passion, you should do it. You shouldn't live for your parents. You shouldn't live for your girlfriend. You should live for you. Yeah, that's really inspirational. I really think that story is great. So help us understand some more context to your journey. What were some earlier influences that you had in terms of comedy as you were growing up? And then how did that kind of manifest and play out to this eureka moment that you just shared with us about Muhammad Ali and really having the wherewithal to kind of throw yourself at comedy? Yeah, my journey, my journey was that, like I said, as a kid, starting to become a fan of comedy discover Eddie Murphy when I'm eight or nine. It's before his special Delirious came out. He had a tape of it. It was just called Eddie Murphy. And he was on Saturday Night Live. And we would sit there and listen to it as kids. And I go, oh, I want to be like this guy. And he had gotten on Saturday Night Live at the age of 19. He was the youngest guy ever on Saturday Night Live. I thought, oh, you know what? I can get on even younger than him. So that was kind of a little number I put in my head. And then, of course, when I tell my parents I want to do that, they go, you're crazy. You're not doing that crap. So I get into plays when I'm 12. I start doing musicals at school. I love being on stage. I feel alive on stage. The directors and whoever I perform in front of always say, oh, you've got, you've got what it takes to do this. And I go, oh, that's great. And then I tell my parents and they go, that bitch is crazy. <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay. Um, and so they basically talk me into wanting to become a lawyer. So when I go to undergrad at UC Berkeley 
I studied political science in the hopes of then going to law school. But then along the way, my junior year in college, I say, you know what, I'm going to go study abroad in Italy. So I go to Italy to study for a year. While I'm there, there's a professor. I love what he does. I come back home from Italy and I tell my parents, I'm not going to be a lawyer. I'm going to be a professor. And that's when my mom goes, are you crazy? There's no job for professors. And I go, how do you know what the job market is for professors? This is what I want to do. In my mind, it's a compromise between a job. You guys want me to have a job that's going to be a reputable job that you can tell your friends he's a professional. So it's not lawyer, but it's professor, right? I, to me, that was a compromise between lawyer and actor or lawyer and comedian. I go professor. I get to stand in front of people and talk. And my parents can show off about their son being a professor. Well, started a PhD program at UCLA. And right away, I went and auditioned for a play that was going on at the theater department. And I got in. So at night, I would go to rehearsals. And at day, I would go to the PhD classes. And I felt a lot more alive in rehearsals than I did in the PhD classes. And so I dropped out of the PhD program first year. And my mom then was really worried about me. You're losing your way. What are you doing? And that's when I got a job, a day job in an advertising agency, thinking that maybe I can just make some money, save some money, and then eventually go pursue acting and comedy. And that's when I was driving my car, saw the billboard. And that was one of the seeds that was planted in my mind. And, and it wasn't until I was 26 at the ad agency my whole life, I continued to do acting on the side as a hobby. So while I was working in the ad agency, I was in a play. And this gentleman at the ad agency by the name of Joe Rein, R-E-I-N, he saw me doing the play and he goes, hey, you're funny. Have you thought about doing this professionally? And I said, Joe, you're telling me I should do it. I took a class in college. The guy told me I should do it. My high school teacher told me I should do it. The junior high teacher, I said, everyone's told me to do it except my parents. And I said, now I'm in my mid-20s and I need to save up some money so that I can go do it. And he took me into his room and he says, into his office. And he says, listen, Maz, I am in my 60s now. This is Joe. And he goes, there were some things I wanted to do when I was in my 20s. I never got around to doing it. And he goes, so if you really want to do it, you got to do it. So I was 26 years old and that was the final light bulb. And that's when I went to my boss and I said, hey, boss, I, uh, I'm your assistant, but just so you know, I'm going to prioritize acting. I'm going to get into a sketch comedy class, take some stand-up classes, and I might be going on auditions. He goes, listen, don't worry about it. Keep the job and just try and use your lunch breaks for all this stuff. Um, and that was it. That was the beginning. 22 years ago is when I decided to do it. Yeah. You know, what he's kind of demonstrating to you in this conversation that you're sharing with us is that. There is something called a regret minimization framework, whereby at the end of your life, you want to minimize the regrets of not doing the things that you wish you had done when you had the time to do them. And that's kind of what you're sharing, right? And another thing, you had the courage to follow your heart. And I think that is something that is so special. And if anybody learns anything from this conversation, I hope it's that. Have the courage to follow your heart. And your, and your life is very much uh, an embodiment of that right? Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I live by that. I tell people that all the time. I say, don't, don't turn around again at the end and go, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. I mean, there's still things that I regret not having 
dived into as much as I want to, like playing the piano. And I and I keep telling myself I will, I will, but I really have to at one point just dive in. But this was the big one because I think that what happens is, you know, there's a lot of development of the brain and your amygdala doesn't develop till later. And a lot of times there are some kids who are very mature and they know what they want from an early age and they do it. And there's some kids that have parents who are supportive enough to understand no matter what that is, I'm going to support you, go for it. I think most parents come from a place of fear and they fear that their child is going to be um, without an income and without a career. So they always defer to the standard secure positions, doctor, lawyer, engineer. And so I don't blame the parents at all. As a matter of fact, the analogy I use is when you're driving a car and someone's in the passenger seat and you're going fast and turning the corners, that passenger always puts their hand on the dashboard every time you turn. Well, that's your family, that's your parents, and they're worried. And you, as the driver, are always confident. I got this. So in trying to understand them, I go, okay, I've also been in the passenger seat and someone's going fast and I'm putting my hands to stop myself. And so that's kind of the scenario that we set up. But the sooner we learn that it's your life, end of the day, the tears are yours, the laughs are yours, the heartbreaks are yours, the victories are yours, and then hopefully you can share those with other people. They're obviously going to be happy for you, sad with you, all of that. But end of the day, if, if it doesn't start with you, then you can't radiate from there. And that's where that Muhammad Ali thing came. I, th I thought, wow, he affected himself, then he affected his family, then he affected the world. And so you live once, man. You, if you have some things you want to do, you got to do it. Mm -hmm. And once you found the courage and inspiration to throw yourself at comedy, how did you go about doing it? Because, you know, your background was in performance and theater and acting. So how did you throw yourself at comedy specifically? Well, again, I always tell people I was a fan before I, I did this. So I think most comedians were fans because most comedians can say, oh, this was my guy. So Eddie Murphy was my guy. So here I am. I'm in high school in the theater program. They have a talent show and they say, anybody got any talents? And I've been thinking about stand-up and I go, you know what? I'll do stand-up. Well, okay. Uh, and at the time I'm 17 and I go, okay. So I start writing and all the material is obviously sexual material because A, Eddie Murphy is my inspiration. B, I'm 17. And I would write the material the, the night before and think it's brilliant. The next day I'd look at it and just think, oh, this is horrible. And so I chickened out that first time of performing. I, I told them, I'm not ready. I'm not going to do it. Then later on in college, I was having kind of a bad day sitting at this bar in college and they had a comedy competition and, and there was only two guys competing and I'm watching them and they both were pretty mediocre. And I thought, oh wow, if they can do it, I can do it. So I always say you're inspired by greatness and mediocrity, <laughs> right? <laughs> right, right. It's true. You see LeBron James slam dunk, you go, I'm going to go try and slam dunk. Or you see someone who's totally out of shape, you know, playing basketball, you go, I could do better than that. So that's basically what that was. So I said, the next time there's going to be an opportunity, I'm just going to take it. So a, a comedy competition was announced on the radio station in Northern California while I was in college. And I said, you know what, I'm going to try this. So I submitted a tape, I was accepted. And then I started building an act. And I did that act a couple of times at a couple of places. But again, not knowing there's a future in this and also getting ready to go to graduate school, I was like, well, 
that was fun while it lasted and let's just put it away so this was now i'm probably in my mid like 21 or like 22 i think so i just put it away and then for the next i said for the next whatever it was three or four years i didn't do stand-up again but i was doing plays but i was too afraid to do stand-up the reason i was afraid of stand-up was because stand-up is just you a play is the director, the writer, the other actors. If it doesn't go well, there's other people to blame. Uh, the story isn't necessarily you. So I was really intimidated by it. Until that moment when I decided after the Joe Ryan conversation to do it and got into a stand-up comedy class. And you come to find out that stand-up comedy is a work in progress until you put it into a special and then once it's on the special, that material just goes away and then you start working on the next next special. So for those that don't understand, help us understand what that means exactly. So what that means is, so as a stand-up comedian, you perform, you know, if you really want to get good at it, you got to be up on stage five to ten times a week. And for that reason, I heard Chris Rock say one time, you got to move to L.A. or New York or anywhere you can where you can perform a lot. So... You go up one night and you're at the comedy store and you do your 15 minutes because that's how they do it in town and you have a great set. And then you go over to the Laugh Factory and you do the same material and you don't have a good set. Well, something went, something different happened. Maybe the crowd was different. Maybe your delivery was different. But you can't bask on that and say, oh, God, I'm horrible. You just got to go, okay, well, I'm going to be going up again tomorrow. And so when you realize that you're going to be going up over and over and over again, when you realize that it's a work in progress, meaning I have really the reason I'm going up is because I'm trying to hone this joke, get it down, get it down, then bring in some new material, get it down, get it down. Eventually I have an hour of material and now I'm touring around the country, sometimes doing you know six, seven shows in a weekend, sometimes doing three shows in one night. And this hour now is starting to carve, carve, carve and it's getting stronger and stronger and your rhythm and this and that. Then eventually you go, wow, I really feel good about this hour. Let's film it and make it a special. Let's get it on Netflix, Comedy Central, Peacock, and let's show it to the world. But no, we are very similar now, man. We are. I know you guys get like, I get like stupid questions. I know you do too. Like, like people think just because I'm from the Middle East, I'm an expert on the Middle East. So like I got a friend, like anytime the gas prices go up, he'll always ask my opinion about it. He'll always corner me. Hey, Maz, hey, Maz, um, in your opinion, what's going on with this gas thing? What is, what's going to happen? What's going on? 50 words or less. Break it down, would you? You're my Middle Eastern friend. Uh, like, dude, I don't, I don't work at OPEC. I don't know. I, I pay the same price as you, you know? Like, I don't have, like, a discount pump at the gas station. You know, I don't walk in like, Hassan Hossein, discount pump? Okay, my friend, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> So once you show it to the world, what happens? What's that like then? Now, once your special comes out, it's a bittersweet feeling because you're like, oh my God, the world is seeing this. And then you go, oh my God, the next time they see me live in a, in a, in a live venue, I can't do these jokes anymore because now they've all seen it. Because comedy is different from music. Music, they want to hear all your old stuff. Comedy, they only want to hear new stuff because a joke is funniest the first time you hear it because it's a surprise. The punchline is a surprise. Mm-hmm. That's really curious. So, Maz, how did you know in this whole kind of trajectory of your career as a comedian, how did you know you were getting good at your craft? What were some indicators? Help us understand what that's all about. 
Well, there's there's several levels. I always compare comedy to boxing because in boxing you can work the speed bag, you can work the heavy bag, you can jump rope, work on your endurance. You can so comedy is the same, right? You can work on your writing, you can work on your crowd work, you can work on your delivery. Well, out the gate in the beginning when I started, my stage presence was better than a lot of the other people in my class. The reason was because I started taking that class at the age of 26. I'd been getting on stage since I was 12. So for 14 years, I've been standing on a stage doing plays. If nothing else, I know that when you're standing on a stage, you need to stand with your front open to the audience, meaning facing the audience, so they can see you. That's something you learn in when you first do plays. They say, don't, don't stand with your back to the audience because the girl in the scene might say, I'm leaving you for your brother and you're crying, but your back is to the audience. They don't see it. So you got to always cheat a little bit so they can see you. So similarly, when I first started the stand-up comedy class, I'm standing there, I'm, I'm, my presence, some of these people, it's their first time on stage. I've been on stage for 14 years. Good. Got that out of the gate. Then as I start doing it, again, because I've been a fan of comedy and because I've been thinking about comedy, once the teacher taught us the formula, which was, Talk about what you know, have an opinion about things, you know, finish this sentence. It's great to be, fill it in. It's horrible to be, fill it in. I hate it when, fill it in. Have an opinion. Well, suddenly I've been a fan and I've been waiting. It's almost like I had all this pent up stuff to talk about. So everyone else in that class came out with a five minute act. I came out with about a 10 minute or maybe more act. And it takes, by the way, months sometimes a year to write a full hour. So I was already prolific in that sense. Mm -hmm. And what you're sharing is that you had an advantage by being a performer, right? You knew the techniques, you know the tactics, you, know to, you knew how to essentially have a real presence with your audience. So now tell us about the comedy store. How did you essentially get involved in, and what did that mean for you in terms of you know, your, your profession as a comedian? So the comedy store is one of the most famous comedy clubs in the world. Mitzi Shore was the owner of the comedy store, Polly Shore's mother. She was, that's the place where David Letterman, Jim Carrey, Robin Williams, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, everybody was there. And they, you know, before the pandemic, it still was, again, it had become one of the hottest clubs in the world. But when Mitzi makes you a regular, you are now on a professional show. So you'll go and there's a lineup of professional comedians you saw growing up. And you're on that list. Wow. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So how did that experience then change the way you understood yourself as a comedian? So that's when I realized, oh, you don't have to do your act from A to Z when you go on stage. Because if you do your act A to Z and don't pay attention to how the audience is reacting, you are basically performing to a wall. But as a comedian, you need to pay attention to how they're reacting talk to them, do some crowd work, let them know you're in the room. So if I'm standing up there just reciting my lines, hey, yeah, my girlfriend just left me. And then somebody breaks a tray of plates in the back and I don't even acknowledge it, I just keep going. So she left me because I was uh, never home. Now the audience is going, hey, didn't you hear those plates break? You should be reacting to that. So when I'm watching the professionals perform, they're reacting to things. They're in the moment. They're looking at someone in the front going, why are you frowning? What the hell's wrong with you? They're leaving their act to talk to this person. So 
I started learning that at the comedy store, how to talk to the audience, learning that it's not about the material, but it's about being funny and being in the moment. One of the nights I had that that happened was early on in my career, I'm getting up at 1.45 in the morning, clubs closing at two, because you would sometimes, because you're the new guy, you end up at the end. So there's 15 minutes to go, and the only people in the audience are these two nerdy guys with a good looking girl. And I'm trying my act and they're just staring at me. And then eventually I just stop. I go, I'm sorry, how did you two end up with her? What's the story? And that became a conversation. They're laughing, I'm laughing, on and on and on and on. And after that, there was a comedian named Freddie Soto who's passed away since, but he was this uh, Mexican-American comedian, one of the funniest guys I know. And he was his career was just about to take off. And he was sitting in the way back in the dark. I didn't even see him. And when I'm done, I sat next to him and he goes, hey, you're funny. I go, thanks. He goes, you know, you're either funny or you're not. It's not about the bits. He goes, if it's about the bits, then you shouldn't even be in this business. He's like, you got, you're a funny person. I said, thank you, Freddie. And it was very complimentary. Mm -hmm. Now, is that when you felt like you were really good at this? You know, we were doing the Access of Evil comedy tour in like, it came out in 2007. I started in 1998. I'd say seven, eight, nine years in, I started really feeling confident. And now, 22 years in, like just maybe a, about a year or two ago, I really was like, oh, I'm, I'm good. At, I'm really good at this. And I remember seeing Dave Chappelle say that in one of his specials. He said, I'm, I'm one of the best at this. And I said, that's funny because I just thought the same thing myself. So I think at a certain point, we all start thinking, I got this. And under the pandemic, I will say, sorry to babble on, but there's been times when I've performed in outdoor shows that were shows with a bunch of different comedians. And sometimes you feel a little intimidated because you go, God, this is not my audience. This is a mixed audience. I don't know who's in this audience. They seem like a lot of out of work actors who tend to be very judgmental. But I've just gone up and spoken my truth and it's been funny. And I've realized, oh, I actually, you know, I, I can handle most situations. And I think that comes from 22 years of doing this. Mm -hmm. And what you're sharing too, is that if you really want something, you have to throw yourself at it over and over and over again to achieve, you know, that level of comfort and or superior understanding of your craft, right? It's the 10,000 hour rule. So Maz, I'm really curious to know is somebody who is a performer, who's a stand-up comic, who makes people laugh, when do you give yourself the freedom and or liberty to not be funny? And then subsequently, when do people give you the freedom and liberty to not be funny? I suppose what I'm asking is when you're in conversation with others, do they expect you always to make them laugh? I think maybe, you know, I've, I've probably encountered some of that with my podcast. I think some people thought the podcast was going to be all funny, but I'm a, I'm a pretty sincere person. I'm a pretty... Um, curious person and so i've had people on that talked about some very serious subjects um so i give myself permission all the time my fans maybe not as much maybe my fans you know if the youtube number of views on youtube or any indication of what people expect of me whenever i put on stand-up that will get you know tens of thousands of views whenever i put on my podcast that'll get a couple thousand views so that either means people don't have the patience to watch the whole thing, or it means that, that they just know me as a comedian and they want the soundbite, 
in a funny way as opposed to listening to the whole thing. So, but I try not to be affected by that because I, I mean, that is what they want, but I'm multidimensional. We're all multidimensional. And so I always tell people I'm not a jukebox. Like I'll be at a party and someone will say, do that funny joke. I go, first of all, it's not jokes. It's not like, I don't have jokes. I do stand up, so I need to be on a stage. I need to be talking about my life. And because of that, actually, it's funny because because of my kids, um, when they were a little bit younger, we started writing some like dad jokes just to try and get the rhythm of joke writing. So I wrote one joke, which is, uh, what's a good night for a fish to go out? Um, what night? Tonight. <laughs> Tonight. So... Okay. So that so that's like whenever someone says say a joke, I go, I got a joke for you, and I'll do a couple of these kid jokes. Mm-hmm. You know, my daughter wrote one. What's where do rappers go to shop for clothing? Uh, where do they go? Jay Z Penny. <laughs> and then my uh, nephew told me one, which is uh, I guess this has been someone else has written it, but he told me where. What do you call money in outer space? I don't know what Starbucks. <laughs> So these are all joke jokes that if somebody like really insists, I go, look, I got a couple for you and I'll do that. But for the most part, I tell people, I go, I'm not a jukebox. I'm not here taking requests. You know, I go, oh, you want me to do a joke? Okay, then you're an accountant. Why don't you do my taxes? You know, it's like, right. you know. Right. And what you're, what you're demonstrating is an important nuance between being a, a jokester and being a performer, right? And, and what you're saying is that you're a performer. You're in conversation with the audience. Yeah. You're not talking at them. You're in conversation with them. So I think that's really important because, you know, depending on the tone and the environment and the feeling of the audience, different aspects of who you are and what you represent surface. And that's that's what you play with as as an artist, right? As an artist, as a creative artist. Yeah. And so at this point in the conversation, I'd like to do Maz is talk to you about, you know, different elements of your identity in particular your Iranian American identity and how you straddle both and how you kind of hold that sense of responsibility of being an Iranian American on stage performing, especially in the wake of post 9-11 world. How does that kind of play out for you and how do you kind of think about that? I always tell people my number one goal as a comedian is just, just to be funny. I want to laugh. And then from there, I want to express my opinions. Now, I try not to take on the mantle of a representative for any community simply because if I do, then I'm going to disappoint you. I will say, even during the last four years under Trump, a lot of Iranians actually actually like Trump. And I was highly critical of him. And I think I disappointed a lot of fans who would reach out and say, oh my God, why are you making fun of him? And he's going to get rid of the Islamic Republic of Iran and I would say, I don't know how you plan on having him do that, but okay. Same thing goes for Muslims. I was born in Iran. It's a Muslim country. I grew up with the Allah pendant on my chest. I never prayed five times a day. I didn't fast during Ramadan. My family wasn't that. I have relatives who are whom I love, but I never practiced. And therefore, I didn't want to have a glass of wine in my hand one day and have someone who's a fan who's a devout Muslim come by and go, how dare you, you know, drink alcohol, whatever. So I said, look, I, I'm not representing anybody. I'm representing me. Now in representing me, I probably have certain things that are in common with what people from my background think. For example, if there's a moment where there's a discrimination against a Middle Easterner, whether it's an Iranian or an Afghan or an Arab or whatever, and I 
talk about it on stage, I think a lot of people will say, oh yeah, I agree with that. I agree with, with what Maz is saying. And he put it in a funny way. Similarly, as much as there were some that liked Trump, there was a lot of people in my community that did not like him. So when I would make fun of him, there was a lot of people who said, oh, I agree with him. I agree with Maz. So I think my finger on the pulse of this community, I have a pretty good finger on that pulse. But again, I'm not trying to say, oh, they're going to like this. They're not going to like this. I'm talking about whatever I like, whatever's on my mind. And so that might be something related to the community or that might be about my kids or under the pandemic. It's my way of expressing myself. If I, if I were a musician, I'd be writing songs about it. If I were a painter, I'd be painting about it. I happen to be a comedian. I'm just telling jokes about it. And so if people find that and go, oh, I like the way you're representing us. Because the fact is, I'm not on stage necessarily doing super crude stuff or, or getting too graphic. People either, like I said, relate to it or feel like, oh, this is someone that I, I feel could represent us. And also, I would say that I try to, whenever I can, I talk about the good that, that's in our community from the Middle Eastern world and just the way we're misrepresented. So I think people have also taken a liking to that because the fact is, whether you're a black comedian or a Latino comedian, Asian comedian, you probably will make fun of the stereotypes people have of your group and try and say, you know, our group's not all that they're made out to be. So that probably has people looking at me as a representative from time to time. Right, right. And comedy, in some sense, is the best channel to kind of expose and or talk about those things that are really difficult to talk about in society, whether it's xenophobia, misogyny, sexism, racism, you name the thing. Comedy, in that sense, I think is a really special channel to be able to talk about the things that are really difficult to talk about. And then also, too, it's important to say that like, if people don't like what people are saying about a certain topic, they themselves have the liberty to you know, write their own script and or narrative and or share their own perspective, right? Maz, I'd like to pivot here and talk to you about uh, what it's like to be a father. You're a father of two now. And I'm just wondering what sorts of things you're trying to instill in your children now, given, you know, the, the way the world works and how things are kind of changing so fast and so much. And how do you kind of keep up with it as a father in this day and age? I mean, I, I try to instill empathy, and they are empathetic. They have empathy for others. Um, and I try to instill this idea of fighting for the underdog. When people ask me, oh, is there material you don't do? And I say, well, I usually, I, I never do material about anyone who's got a handicap or any kind of disability, because that's punching down. I go, I always try to punch up. That's why I go after politicians, or I go after something that I find to be ridiculous, or I self-deprecating. So those are definitely two qualities that I put I try to instill in them. I try to put um, a sense of humor, which they, they already have. They love Saturday Night Live. They love Key and Peele. They love all that stuff. Some independence in this day and age is very important, I think, to, to put some independence in them. So, for example, if they you know, want to get something, I go, take your bikes, go for it, go get it, you know, or if they are making a mess, I say, clean it up. You know, there's a lot of simple stuff you make them do so that they, they're not that spoiled kid. I don't want them to be at someone's house and be the spoiled brat who's just running around making a mess and people are going, oh, who, 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 who are these people's parents? And then what I learned from my own experience, which is I've always, you know, because my parents did not encourage me to pursue what I wanted, I tell them, I say, find your passion and go for it. And I try to always be supportive of that. Yeah, I like how you give the advice that you wish you were given when you were growing up. 
So Maz, as we kind of come to a close, how would you go about answering the question, you know, what is your message for the world? <laughs> My message for the world is uh, be kind. Uh, it's easy to be a jerk. It's easy to be unhelpful, but be kind. I think that life's too short. You know, when you're kind, it's contagious. You feel good. It's kind of like the words of uh, Zoroaster, the first monotheistic religion, right? It's uh, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Mm -hmm. Let's try that, right? Right, right. Maz Jabrani, thank you for your time today, and thank you for being the light in the darkness, my friend. Thank you. Appreciate it. If you enjoyed this conversation, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, please share it far and wide. This podcast is made possible by a superb group of individuals. Specifically, this podcast was produced by Joe Ganjemi. Digital marketing by Catherine Ahn. Artwork by Mashida Hadi. And theme music by Kais Esar. You can find us online via Stories of Transformation on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we have an online community named the Stories of Transformation group. In this group, we discuss topics related to the human condition. Please join us. We'd love your engagement. Thank you for your support and see you next time.